0: hi and welcome to brothers without banners i'm dan and i'm here with my brother michael to help lead him through his first time reading a song of ice and fire we'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing today and those that came before but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of game of thrones the tv show from a decade ago today we're going to be diving into Catelyn 3 john 3 and ned 4 of a game of thrones how's it going michael
1: you know, it's going all right dan how are you doing I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's our first recording of the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Look at us. It's 2023. I heard Game of Thrones season four is about to come out. I heard The Winds of Winter is about to come out. I don't know what that is.
0: That's the next <laughs> book that we're waiting on until the end of eternity. To be clear, that was a joke. Uh, you're new to this <laughs> this fandom. Uh, Winds of Winter is always
1: about to come out. Uh, it will be forever. I don't know. As long as the book's written by the time I get there, how many books are in this season in this series? There are five. Uh, it won't be at
0: the rate we're going. I think we've got a couple years worth of podcasting. Uh, so by then, we will only have you know six, seven more years to wait for that book.
1: All right. Well, we're
0: young-ish, kind of. Yeah. We have uh, we have exciting news about the podcast. Uh, well, for me to share with you, we're uh, we're growing. We've gone international.
1: International, you say.
0: Yeah, we, we have listeners now. Uh, I don't know who you are, so feel free to reach out on Twitter or shoot us an email. Uh, and let us know. But we've got listeners in Germany, Australia, Morocco. Uh, oh, kind of get crazy out of here! Stuff going on, yeah.
1: I think if anybody's trying to learn English, this is the show to do it with. Uh, I'm not even convinced we speak English with which to do it. No prepositions yeah. at the end of sentences.
0: I got to be honest, we probably sound better to people who only speak German.
1: It we're very sweet sounding. Very Not that intelligent, but yeah. I would fall asleep to this podcast. Yeah. Should try and do an ASMR version. Mm. So, yeah, so we're
0: we're getting Dragons. into the next three here. We've got some fun stuff to get into.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, things, things are happening. For the fact that we spent the first – basically the first 100 pages of this book was a lot of world-building – you know, all of a sudden we talked about it a lot on some earlier on some earlier episodes, but about like, oh, inciting incident. Wait, now there's another inciting incident, and now it's like things are happening from that inciting incident. Um,
0: who do we kick it off with this this time? Where, where are we Catlin. starting? We started with Catelyn arriving in King's Landing. You know, for, for me, this is a really fun section of the book we've got coming up because this is really the kickoff to what is in essence a, a noir star. Noir. Let me try that again. This is an essence. Leave that in. uh,
1: Let the Germans learn. Let the Moroccans (laughs) learn. Don't speak like Dan.
0: This is effectively a noir story. Uh, I mean, you you and I read some Dick Tracy stuff when we were younger. Uh, (laughs) This is is right up that alley. Nero Wolf. (laughs) Yeah, we've we've got some some seedy characters, some shady people, some some people with secrets, and we're trying to uncover them. I love
1: it. It's actually, you know, and I know we'll get to it in a moment, but it was really interesting to start to leave these sort of super, what I'll refer to as highbrow, high-esteemed characters' lives. Winterfell, the King, the Lannisters. And now, like you're saying, we're starting to see kind of a little bit more texture in some of the characters around us. Let's get into the muck. Yeah, let's see. (laughs) Who are we meeting? We start with with Captain Moreo Timitis. I'm sure I said that right. I'm sure you did. You nailed it. Morio.
0: I think I would have gone with. Uh, more more I don't know, like the ear
1: problem. Yeah. So so why don't you give us a little recap on
0: where we've been before as we settle back
1: in here? So most recently, I we left with Bran. We left with Bran three, and Bran was having what seemed at first to be almost like a like a a, a death dream, uh, which turned itself into um, two really significant. Two really significant things, and one thing that I thought happened after this, but then uh, actually happened before. The first is is we realize that he's actually gaining uh a uh, sort of a uh, some type of power of sort of mystical sight uh, omniscience of a type. omniscience yeah exactly he he's somehow able to start having a, a, a vision of things that are going on that he should have no right being able to see and and then the second thing is he wakes up. He's now awake. He's out of this yeah. coma. That's there. The third thing that I was remembering is happening post wake up, but actually happened before is that Catelyn has decided to go to King's Landing yes. to beat the the king's party and her husband there, so that she can go there and sneak in and talk to her husband and get some information about the you know try to get and share information about the assassin who has come to try to kill Bran. Yeah, and so well, that's where we find ourselves now. We find Catelyn on the boat, basically getting pulling into King's Landing
0: yeah yeah so she yeah we see her get here she does in fact beat the king's party as we learn shortly uh and it's her and sir roderick who uh if you'll remember is the master at arms up at winterfell Mm -hmm. he was the one training the kids in earlier chapters uh and crucially is described as having these great big mutton chops those come up a bunch in these chapters and they're landing at king's landing on their boat Catelyn thinks about how they made some great time. They would still be making their way past the Fingers, which is a little area in the Vale, if they hadn't gotten on this big ship with oars. Uh, Speaking of the oars, Catelyn tips all of the oarsmen directly. She does not trust the captain to hand it out which I think is a really nice character beat little moment for her. She knows how these things work. The captain offers to hold on to the cash for them in case they want to gamble or drink. And she says, no, it's their money. If they want to have fun with it, they can. The uh, ship, just a little bit of background here, little, little details, it's called the Storm Dancer. And Captain Morio Moreo is a Tyroshi, so from the free city of Tyroshi. He is not from Westeros. He seems to be a pretty successful merchant. And he's the one who got them there so quickly. And the last note that we have on their journey is just that Sir Roderick, as we saw in Bran's dream, has been really seasick the whole time they were on this trip. Uh, he's finally feeling better as they pull into the city. But unfortunately, he had to
1: shave off his mutton chops. Say because goodbye to the mutton chops. He threw up into them a lot. Which he got is, his sick in them. Yeah, pretty gross. I thought it was interesting during this trip, too. There's a lot of... What I'll say is world building. I mean, there. Catelyn spends a good amount of time thinking about some friends of hers who she who are potentially in King's Landing that she'll see. Friends being more like acquaintances and people that have come from her past. Uh, but I thought it was interesting just how many people were 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 spoken about and spoken like like in consideration of.
0: Yeah. So let's let's chat through those. Our, our first new appearance is a guy named Sir Aaron Santigar. And he is the king's master at arms. So he is the, uh, the the capital, the king's court equivalent of Sir Roderick here. And he's the one that they're going to go show the dagger to, to see if he recognizes what it is, uh, because of course, the master at arms is also responsible for the armory. So if it came from the king's armory, then he might know who it belongs to. Uh, Catelyn and Roderick debate about who should go and talk to Sir Aaron, and uh, they end up determining that it should be Roderick because he won't be recognized, first of all, without his mutton chops, which is the only thing anybody thinks of about him. Uh, but more importantly, because of the second name that we get, which is Lord Baelish, uh, who has been mentioned before. But we learn here that
1: Catelyn knows him from when they were kids. They they grew up together. Apparently, everybody in this world had a lot of wards. Yes, yes. So so little
0: Lord Baelish, also known as Littlefinger, uh, was a ward with Catelyn's father. Uh, we don't know the context that led to that, or if he was also a hostage or, or taken in war or something along those lines, but he's also called Littlefinger, Her Brother Edmure, who we get our, our, I believe, first reference to here as well, was the one who came up with that nickname. She thinks about how it's because the fingers are a series of, of outcroppings into the narrow sea in the Vale, and... Littlefinger is from the smallest of the fingers, hence the name Littlefinger. Also, he was very short and small. But you gotta assume we've got a couple of teenage boys here, and one of them nicknames the other Littlefinger. This is, in my
1: opinion, a dick joke. Uh see so that never occurred <laughs> to me. Sure. No, I get okay. I guess anyway, yeah, yeah I he, even he wonder. That, Well, while well, he was a like she he was a brother to her. She he wanted her to be more than a sister to him.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, she does think about that. And uh, we get some other references to that over these couple of chapters here as well. Uh, for instance, when she brings up Littlefinger as the person who will recognize her if she goes to the castle, uh, we get a fun little moment from Roderick here. He says, Lord Baelish wants uh, and then trails off uncertainly in search of the polite word. And that's when Catelyn jumps in to say, oh, we grew up together. Baelish was a ward uh, and he liked me, but I thought of him as a brother. Do, do you think they hooked up? Maybe little little secret, little secret past. Not between really. The two of them? She's
1: so straight laced. Like I can't imagine her <laughs> up doing anything more than the purest of pure for right. whatever That's her fair. future husband would be. We get a little more background
0: here too. We hear uh, again about Brandon, her former betrothed, and Ned's older brother, uh, specifically. When her betrothal to Brandon was announced, uh, Baelish stepped up and challenged him to a fight, a duel for the the right to have Kat's hand. Uh, Brandon let Baelish off with a scar, she thinks, and uh, she hasn't seen Baelish since he left after that fight. Uh, He did write her a letter after Brandon died, though, but she already knew she was going to have to marry Ned, so she burned it without reading it. And we wrap up this little conversation with uh, a brief mention that Baelish is now on the small council. So he has risen pretty high in the world and uh, is one of the counselors to the king.
1: Which then, I didn't realize in the moment of reading it, but I guess it like means that he'll be working quite closely with Ned as well as yes. the hand of the king, which I, I don't think small council had been mentioned before this. Uh, no, think. it
0: probably hadn't. we had heard about the king's counselors and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and Littlefinger's name came up in that context, but I don't think we had heard the term small castle. But yeah, we, we see them in action in a couple of chapters. So Catelyn, as they land, looks out over the city, specifically over King's landi- Landing's three high hills. Uh, and we hear a little bit of history about the Red Keep, but this is the king's castle. It was uh, originally started by King Aegon and then eventually finished by Magor
1: the Cruel, who was his son. So I actually, I made a note here when i was reading right right before it went into some of this explanation and and this note i found to be a theme through a couple of these chapters okay is catlin really dumb okay uh, this is <laughs> my question uh yeah so the question that i have is here she is trying to be incognito on this boat and she's busy thinking about like, oh, I'm going to get there in time. And oh, my God, there's the castles and here's the stuff about castles. But I couldn't help but think like you're you're really obviously you, Catelyn Stark, on this boat filled with people that you're throwing money at. Like how how surreptitious are you trying to be here? Like Like it doesn't feel like she's like using her brain here a little bit which i feel really validated about in about four pages
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay well we'll we'll get to that but no that's reasonable you know she's she does not seem to be hiding and she certainly insists at first that she should be the one to go to the castle before sir Roderick says no it should be me which seems like the obvious conclusion to reach here um I just wonder if, you know, this isn't something that she's used to doing, at least not lately. I mean, we have gotten a lot of senses from her, and you and I have talked about before about how she is the more politically adept one mm-hmm.
1: uh, in this relationship. And so from that perspective, yeah, maybe she should have realized that. And, and I think to that to that point, too, that, you know, it, it's funny, it's fun to be tongue-in-cheek and all of that, but but – to that point as well, I think it might even speak to how far out of her comfort zone she is. It's one thing to be politically yes. astute and adept to situations and things like that. It's another thing to have to, you know, secretly abscond to a place and try to sneak. You know what I mean? It's like there, there are professionals that do this. I uh, I know last episode we were talking about, you know, I'd made comments about, you know, Ned being honorable to a fault, this mm-hmm. idea of sort of like like, like a highfalutin honor. Which may may not be appropriate in all situations or not be able to be lived up to. And I wonder if this is along the same vein a little bit. You have these Starks that have been living in the very like, like uh plentiful type of place in the sense of you know being uh, how wealthy they are in their position. Right. And, and now all of a sudden there's some cracks starting to form in the in the in this in, in the ground that they stand on, you know, and and their discomfort is starting to really show through. I think that we're seeing it a little bit here with Catelyn. We'll see it again in a couple chapters with Ned. Uh, we'll even see it with John, who who's sandwiched in the middle between these guys, too. But I just right. thought it was it's something that, that caught my eye here. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll talk more about this in a moment. Yeah. I, I think it's
0: worth asking, though, how much of it has to do with honor and honor to a fault. You know, they don't want to get their hands dirty versus how much uh, how much of it comes from ignorance. They don't necessarily know the tools that are accessible to yeah. other people and they don't Uh, think to use them and so we talked about that a little bit uh last episode when talking about ned at aria's mini trial Mm -hmm. and how he approached that as a personal relationship with robert which just wasn't the game that anybody else was playing and his inability to realize that notice that she probably assumes that she is safe in numbers this is a huge city that's part of the description we get here and you know she's arriving on a random boat that's coming from Uh, white harbor who knows who's looking probably nobody she can sneak into the city and then sneak back
1: out and it won't be a big deal I like that what you said too is just like how much Ned and Catelyn you know just as the Starks are just don't want to get their hands dirty and I think that we start to see real early here in this chapter and and then through the, the the following ones that we'll talk about uh that everything's kind of dirty you know, the people who are trying to not be dirty are the ones who might be heads in the clouds just a little bit. Everybody's kind of playing a role. Who we get to meet in these chapters, uh, and yeah, that sort of stuff. Absolutely, to me I think yeah. you know, and to, to what we're just talking about, Littlefinger, right? So it's uh, she, Catelyn even mentions as she's talking about him. I I marked this down too. Uh, she says he was. This is in reference to him now being on the small council, and she says uh, he was always clever, even as a boy. But it is one thing to be clever and another to be wise. Right. And the value that's held in wisdom is great here, except clever seems to be pulling in plenty of ducats for this uh, this little finger.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, some of that just turns to goals. Like, what is what is wisdom mm-hmm. directed at? Is it directed at rising? I mean, Ned didn't want the job, and eventually, Kat didn't want him to take it either. So, right. you know, maybe wisdom is knowing not to pursue those things. But we wrap up the thinking about the city uh, and and the description of the city with a bit more of a story about. Uh, the Red Keep, specifically that or the Cruel, who we were hearing our first reference to him. Uh, when he finished it, he killed all of the workers that worked on it, saying that only the blood of the dragon should know the secrets of the dragon's castle. Uh, and executed all of them which you know makes me wonder if that's part of where his name came from but also it taps into some interesting history uh surrounding retainer sacrifices uh, which a bunch of early societies have examples of uh, I know of the most famous for being surrounding pharaohs but also in ancient China and on the Pontic mm. steppe in various parts of Eurasia where when a ruler died in this case he didn't die he just finished the building but when they died their retainers and their servants were ritually sacrificed to bring with them. And it was often seen as a great honor. But this is an interesting thing, whether intentional in the book or not, is such a symbol of a strong autocracy and a strong central power, Mm. that this is something that they're able to do even after death, that they bring people with them as part of a religious aspect and a religious ceremony. Uh, And so, you know, this is a cool descriptor of what the Targaryen regime, at least early on following the field of fire and things like that looked like
1: it made me think of the the conversations i think it was tyrion who had even mentioned it uh but about sort of the size of the 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 dragon skulls of old and then how they got smaller and smaller here we have a tale of a much older targaryen who was clearly ruthless and vicious and 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 you know had brought the kingdoms together and whatever he might have done no, yeah. the red keep uh and then you know obviously we we know Viserys and Daenerys uh as just being children on the way yeah.
0: <laughs> and then you have to ask you know we're, we're getting into a whole conversation surrounding Robert where does he fall on that mm. spectrum and and what type of dragon is he obviously not any type of dragon but sure. uh, right. metaphorically but so uh Catelyn and Roderick ask the captain of the ship uh where they should stay and he points them to an inn where they go and check in uh Catelyn goes to hang out in her room while Roger goes to the castle and she falls asleep and wakes up several hours later to somebody pounding on her door uh it's close to sunset she slept later than she wanted she opens up the door and finds that it's two guards of the city watch who are here to bring her to the castle and they say that they were sent by Lord Baelish which prompts Catelyn to blame Moria the ship captain saying that he must have sold her out uh do you think that's what was going on? Is he the tipster? I mean, he's the named character we have here, but we were just talking about her failure to consider everything around her. I I mean, I think it's notable that she just got off these busy docks into this gigantic city uh, where she wandered down the street to an inn and she immediately assumes, oh, it must be one specific guy as opposed to everyone is watching everything I'm doing here.
1: I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I thought it was him. I thought it was him or somebody else on the boat. I thought maybe, I mean, again, this goes back to what I had said a moment ago, right? Like, she just doesn't seem like she's taking many precautions before getting to King's Landing. We right. can't go and rent a boat as Catelyn Stark, you know, from one place and not She, expect, she needed to shave off her own mutton chops. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like there, it, it does... <laughs> But I, and and I, and I understand, I understand the situation, right? Like you can't get the speed that she wanted to get unless you disclose who you are and the importance of it. You know what I mean? Like, like I understand that, but she's definitely like cashing in favors or whatever it might be. And, and, and she just doesn't seem to be too concerned until she arrives and steps off the boat. And that just seems kind of silly. So yeah, like, what would you
0: have, what would you have suggested she do? Like, what should she have done differently to avoid notice? I guess not rented a private vessel. Yeah. Just take more time to get there.
1: If they, yeah. Just you like, know, if you like have, have to. to eat it a little bit and, 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 you know, like, like deal with it that way or, or not go yourself would be another one. <laughs> like, yeah. like of all the information that she'll eventually gather down here, like none of it is mean, think- necessary for her to be present per se.
0: I think the big flaw for me is, is the fact that she didn't realize this was going to happen. You know, it's one thing if she had consciously said, we need speed, we got to get there first. I'm willing to take the risks and made that conscious choice, but you're absolutely right. She seems so surprised by the fact that she got spotted within hours of getting here and got summoned to the castle. Uh, but yeah, with that, she gets, gets brought to the castle. She's, immediately sees Baelish and she's very mad at him for it. I am not accustomed to being summoned like a serving wench. As a boy, you still knew the meaning of courtesy. And, uh, you know, he plays this great. He looks contrite. She thinks he always used to be able to look contrite after getting caught, uh, which was a great skill of his. And, uh, and, you know, he, he plays this with the courtesy that she's talking about in the sense of the trappings of nobility and being able to look good there. We get our first description of him. He uh, was a small boy who had grown into a small man, and he has a goatee and is starting to gray a little bit. Um, and at this point, he starts getting familiar with Catelyn. He welcomes her and greets her, uh, and then discloses that in fact it was Varys who saw her arrive in the city and he's going to be coming soon, but he wanted to chat with her first. But the he warns spy her master. the spymaster. master. Varys' little birds uh know everything that goes on in the city. Um, and Varys
1: came to Baelish to pass that information along. I didn't find I didn't find much of this terribly surprising, though. I mean, like you have somebody who's been described before even being met as Hmm, clever, if not wise and, you know, opportunist, if you will. I think yeah. that, that like, like you've asked me previously, like, like about different characters, you know, what I think of their personalities. And I think this guy's just, he's, he's oily, you know, yeah. I think that I don't necessarily trust anything he says and, and we'll meet various in just a second. I don't trust anything. He says they're, they're very much unlike the Starks and even unlike the Lannisters, these are not people with high, uh, you know, if not, not honest, but, but, but espoused, you know, goals to be leaders. These are people that are taking advantage of their, you know, what types of situations they can take advantage of and, and being opportunists, I think, and, in a in a very realistic and honest way, like, like, makes sense to me. You know, you have this character of Baelish, of Peter Baelish, of, of L- a Littlefinger, who... Was a ward whose love was spurned, and he kind of went and made a great name for himself. He's high up. He's in the king's council. He's he's obviously in control. He definitely came and like kidnapped basically Catelyn, who is the wipe of the hand of like this is not something that you do. But he's 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 peacocking, Uh, and I guess that makes sense to me like like for his position. So you know it's interesting, but I don't necessarily trust a word that he's saying right now. He seems to have his own. Motivations.
0: Okay, that's fair. We'll we'll talk a little more about what those motivations might be in a, a little while. Uh, okay. Catelyn says she's here just because she missed Ned and her daughters. Uh, Littlefinger instantly calls her out on that. Family duty, honor are the Tully words, and all three require Cat to stay in Winterfell. What are you really doing here? Uh, and and he specifically says old sweet friends should never hesitate to rely on each other. And at this point, Varys shows up and walks in, and uh we got our description of him too spymaster and you know i think it's interesting he is not at least in my opinion what i would imagine as a spymaster you know you think spymaster you think maybe something more similar to ill and pain sneaky and dark and scary and Mm -hmm. those types of things but varus is plump perfumed powdered and as hairless as an egg he's dressed very fancily and wearing gold and purple which are of course the royal colors not in this universe but just in life so dressed very lavishly living very lavishly and he jumps straight into the conversation with cat he offers to get uh Pycelle to help with her hands which he notices are hurt uh specifically asks if she burned herself she said no uh and and she says that's okay i've intended to already uh he offers his sympathies about brands uh and then Varys shares that he has great respect for ned quote and i know we do both love king robert and that generates somewhat of a laugh from Baelish you know he he says Robert's very well loved these times isn't he did you have any reaction to this is this I mean it it almost feels like a veiled threat to Ned to me uh to, to line those two up you know Varys is being full of shit and uh about Robert, is he also being full of shit about Ned, I guess, is the question.
1: I suppose, but I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is just about, you know, here you have this Stark family who really is now seeming, especially by contrast, to be a little kind of high on their own supply, if you will, you know, about an honor and how things should be and that there's a method to doing this. And now we're starting to meet these sort of much more nuanced characters who understand the situation that they're in. You know, this uh, Viserys, uh Varus, you know, the spymaster, we've already learned that he was the spy master for the king before. And I'm sure he said right. exactly the same thing then. I think that it's it's now for me, the the you know, the the table is turning, at least prospectively, for me as a reader. All of a sudden, these heroic characters and caricatures of Ned Stark, of Catelyn, of their honor and what they stand for is really ill-fitting in a city that's teeming with different types of life and people in positions that have been in those positions for a long time that have an understanding of what they can gain from those positions. These do not strike me, you know, Varys and Littlefinger don't strike me as people who were especially, and we know it for for Littlefinger, these are not people that were born into you know houses that they would then take over.
0: But well, we just heard that Varus is not a lord. Uh you know that's really one of the few things we know about him but he does not actually have the title separate from being spymaster.
1: Exactly. So I you know I I don't find there to be any of the you know, these hidden barbs that we feel sometimes with the Lannisters as we've gotten to meet them sometimes, or the, you know, the, 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 you know, full blown honor, sense of honor that we hear from the Starks. These are more what I'll say in big air quotes normal people, you know, okay. they're, they're nasty. They're trying I to get what they need.
0: That's a good read on the situation. I, I, you know, I think that that's totally fair. I just want to, you know, maybe plant some seeds here or some misdirection. Who's to say? But I I just wonder. We have here two people, as you've identified, certainly with Baelish and maybe with Varys, who have risen very high from where they started in the world, pretty much as high as you can go without being a member of the royal dynasty or the hand of the king. And what you're saying here sounds a little bit. to me, like they don't have anywhere to go from here, which I think would be a weird characteristic to have in somebody ambitious, that they don't have goals that they're seeking out or, or things they're trying to manipulate people to.
1: Oh, I don't know about that. I guess I, I i mean much more that not that there's nowhere to go, but that they understand that there's always more like a greater place to go. Okay. You know, it's its the Starks that I think think We've already made it. I don't want to go to King's Landing. I've got my home. I'm ready to retire here and live out my days. It's people like Varys and Littlefinger that are saying, no, 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 there is more money, more political power to have. There's more, you know, sort of uh, opportunities to take for these types of things. And and that's sort of the big difference that I see here.
0: A little concerning that you're describing that as the normal thing. Satisfaction and comfort, that's that's for rich assholes. I'm here to grind my way to the top. Well, at this point, uh, Varys then blows up the entire conversation and asks to see the dagger uh Catelyn had not mentioned the dagger yet uh and crucially Varys had just asked her about the burns on her hands uh so this is quite a pivot here and Baelish has the reaction uh that I think we kind of have saying I don't know what's going on here what dagger are we talking about who's Sir Roderick uh I I like this quote I feel rather like the knight who arrives at the battle without his lance Baelish has now found himself in a dream where he's at class giving a presentation and has no pants on
1: oh I was just gonna say that I kind of like that as Here are these two characters that we're meeting simultaneously that seem similar. They're both, you know, in these positions of counsel to the king, but we immediately start to find out that there's there's a big difference. Whereas Littlefinger has found himself in a strong position by his wit or his you know cunning or whatever it might be. uh, Varys has knowledge. (laughs) He has deeper his you know his his web of spies. His little mean, This is his job. Yeah. Go deep. Exactly. And and you know I'm sure there's there's values brought by both of them, but there's a clear knowledge value that Varys has that I, I can only assume will continue to be a strong value moving forward in these books.
0: Yeah. Okay. So Catelyn pulls out the dagger uh, and hands it to Varys who examines it. And then Baelish walks over and picks it up and uh, has a big flourishing, dramatic reveal. It's my knife.
1: <gasps> dun, dun, dun. little mm-hmm. Littlefinger tried to kill Bran. Uh, not
0: quite because uh. he says, yeah. Uh, it's mine, or rather, it was mine, right up until the tourney for Prince Joffrey's name day, uh, for Prince Joffrey's recent birthday. Uh, and he said he had bet on Sir Jamie in the jousting. He lost to a guy named Loris Tyrell. This is the first time I think we've heard of him. Uh, and Sir Jamie lost 100 golden dragons betting on himself. The queen lost an emerald pendant, and I lost my knife to Tyrion the Imp.
1: Dun, dun, dun. It's Tyrion's the murderer. Yeah. So I mean Tyrion was
0: in the north, uh, obviously. Uh he was with the King's party. So this fits in with Catelyn's theory from before. Uh I, I mean, what do you think of this? We've gotten some weird, slimy, oily feelings from Baelish before. What do you think's going on here did did this happen is Tyrion the killer uh i mean you had said before that it was it was somebody coming from emanating out of of cersei and jamie but you kind of avoided making a prediction but where are you at on this murder mystery now
1: yeah you know honestly like i was surprised in in the best of ways to find to hear Tyrion's n- name like uh th- that it was his dagger and his direct connection i Mostly because I thought it was smarter than that. Yeah. Uh, but I'll also add, like, I remember when we were talking about, hey, it must have been, I think, Tyrion 1, where, you know, he kind of came to breakfast and Jamie and Cersei are there, and and they're talking, and he catches a glance between them. And, and I know you and I had started to discuss that there. You know, what did he see there? You know, what's going on here? And even with the attempt on Bran, we talked a little bit about it. But again, to me, the Lannisters are kind of just a, they are a singular to me okay. uh, as of right now. I know that we've had a little bit of looks, you know, so, some some negativity come from Tyrion about his I family. Mean, it's and it it's bringing... more
0: than a little bit. He said he used to dream about killing his dad and, and Cersei.
1: Yeah, but I'm not, you know, don't, don't we all? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> you no, said no that I,
0: last time too, and <laughs> I'm really not liking it.
1: No, no, no. Uh, I, I, but I guess well, we I, don't
0: have a sister, so I'm safe all, for now. But...
1: All I mean by it though is that, like, like, what's that first line of, like, Anna Karenina, right? Like, every family's happiness is the same, but every family's, like, sadness and trauma is unique to themselves. Uh-huh. Like, like, I think family issues are family issues. Uh, and I think that, that Tyrion has plenty of his. But I think, like, you know, Lannisters stick together is sort of the feeling that I'm getting right now about a lot of this. You know, what whether it's more them against the world, despite their infighting as it may be. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if Terry okay. I mean involved at the same
0: time though, like the story we just got is all of the Lannister's bet on Jamie except Tyrion who bet against him and won this dagger that way. I mean that's not very sticking with your sticking with the family us against
1: the world right there. I guess so I'll, I I guess part of me just thinks that if Tyrion really was st- more strongly motivated against his family in a more like like honest and direct way like like a real actionable way, I think he'd be a little quieter about it. I don't Uh think that he would be talking about it so much or letting it out so much or betting again. you know, like, you know, these are jibes against family much more than it is like some direct subtle attack.
0: Yeah. But, but at the same time, I mean, you literally just said this. I thought Tyrion was smarter than that. He sends an assassin to go kill Bran after he left using the knife that he just won from Baelish so if anybody right. asks about this or recovers the knife it instantly traced back to him i mean it, either oh. either he is subtle enough to not openly talk about how much he hates his family or he's so unsubtle as to put himself in the firing line of a murder accusation i mean you can't have it both ways here
1: yeah well i just i guess i'd have to say that like like i just don't it's hard and i know that it'll be brought up again in a chapter or two like we'll we'll talk about it on this episode but like like i don't know how you could implicate tyrion and not implicate the rest of the family you know what i mean like 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 somebody i think made a dumb move here uh-huh. much more than than Tyrion was trying to make a statement like okay but I mean, maybe I'm wrong but but in all honesty like Tyrion every time we get to hear his <laughs> stick to your view, guns yeah like like every time we, we we get a Tyrion chapter I mean he is he's in his head more than he's being actionable about anything and and he right. has thoughts and big thoughts but this is a pretty overt sort of thing it, to me it just casts more shade on just Lannister family maybe he was involved for all I know maybe he okay. hired the guy or maybe you know he's like I'm gonna nip this problem in the bud real fast you know what I mean which by the way we'll see in a chapter a comment that I'll br- I'll, I'll come back to this comment in in the next chapter okay. uh with I something think I else know what you're of, yeah but at all this right. moment I'm I'm thinking that this is okay we we already know Lannisters are involved in the murder of Lysa we already know that Cersei's an absolute witch of a human we know that Jamie what's that
0: murder of john aaron oh you i'm sorry yeah sorry oh you oh, said I'm Lysa. Yeah. yeah no it's no, no, okay. no john
1: aaron. uh Lysa's husband and uh but but we know cersei's a real witch about things we know that jamie would do anything for cersei we know that Tyrion is up in his head you know but but there's they're all just you know
0: okay well i i need a lot from a witch you then at. i need something a little more concrete from you then okay do you think Tyrion armed the assassin with his own dagger. Do you think another Lannister? I know you keep saying they're all a group together, and you don't care. Did Tyrion give his dagger to this assassin to go kill Bran? Did somebody in the family take the dagger from Tyrion to give it to the assassin to go kill Bran, or was this dagger never Tyrion's and Balish is framing him?
1: I think Tyrion gave the dagger. Okay, I think he thought it would have gone faster and better. Okay, okay.
0: And, you know, I guess if, if nobody stops the guy and the guy gets out of there, then he gets away with it. Lit the library on fire. All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, we do know he thought a lot about the libraries. so I maybe mean, he even planted that idea, too. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's the end of the chapters with this revelation, uh, which brings us through to John
1: 3. John is now enmeshed in the Night's Watch. He's yeah, up on the he's wall. He's there. And we start uh, we start in in a courtyard in a similar sort of uh, situation that he actually was watching earlier uh, up up in Winterfell, which is, you know, training with swords. Uh, And he is just dominating. Uh, He is just kicking the crap out of the people with him. And yet he's not given any sort of room to breathe or gloat about it. The uh, the master at arms there, whose name I think is. nope, I didn't even write it down. Sir Alistair Thorne. That was going to be my guess, yeah. uh, but basically turns around and is like, man, like you think you're cool. You're not like like he, he's just giving him giving him shit, basically. And John hates it. And and I find I and we'll go through the story of this chapter, but I, I find John to be quite petulant throughout this. Just kind of brat yeah, He is. Yeah. Um, you know, That's he definitely sure. and, and I'll give him credit and he brings it up really fast in this chapter, too. You know, he's saying he, fe- I mean, he feels kind of lied to this was supposed to be an honorable, like, like beautiful brotherhood. And he's surrounded by rapists and, and crooks and thieves, you know, the whole place is falling apart. And he feels like the only person who was honest with him is actually Tyrion, right? Uh, you know, this, this impish imp is what I'll call him. Yeah. So before we, we get to that thought
0: process, we just get a little bit of story or, or color on Sir Thorne here. Uh, because we just have a whole argument between the two of them that I think is is interesting and good insight onto this relationship that John is struggling with. Because uh, John kicks the crap out of a guy named Gren, who is bigger than him, uh, but is not very good at what they're doing uh and john leans on his sword to save the victory thorn yells at him and calls him lord snow uh and so you know this kind of hits john on on two sides which is you come from a noble background and a noble family uh but snow is also of course his last name because he is a bastard and not a stark and we know how much john is bothered by that uh they then have this exchange he says i'm leaning on my sword because i'm tired thorn says no you're weak and he says how am i weak i just won And Thorne says, no, Gren lost. Uh, You didn't win, he lost. And so this is really where we get that idea that John is struggling with with Thorne hating him and really singling him out and him having trouble with this situation. But I think it's interesting because we get this as John is getting cramped on by Sir Alasur. It's not like anybody around him is getting it much easier. I mean, he strikes me as much more of the like dick drill sergeant, full metal jacket style guy. yeah uh, basic training than anything else. You know, he calls John Lord Snow, which John hates, but he calls Gren the aurochs, which is, you know, like, like calling him a big, slow idiot. Uh, like this is just not a nice guy. And John seems to take it very personally.
1: Yeah. I, a million percent agree. I think it speaks to, you know, John's youth. He's, I mean, he is really young. I know we see him as older from the TV shows, but he's like a 15 year old. I think he mentions, uh, I think he's
0: 14 in the books. Yeah. Yeah. So he's uh, either yeah. way, it's very young.
1: But uh, but he is very young. He's he definitely is coming into all of this with highfalutin ideas and things like that. I think he feels and also, I mean, like like a lot of things and to get just a little to his credit, he just had to go through a lot much earlier in his life than I think he would have ever expected at Winterfell. You know, with all the changes that happened, having to leave so quickly and and things like that, these might have been things that may have been like coming down the pipe for him in his future, regardless. But uh, but but I I can understand where he's coming from. I will say you know he definitely expresses his uh, mm, not contempt but his his he's 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 homesick. You know he yeah. doesn't love where he is. He's homesick. It's cold and awful here. And uh and then we find and I'll, I'll keep going through right the the their fight ends. John is mopey. Uh, yeah. he's homesick, and then all of a sudden he's surrounded by you know Gren who he just defeated. And to the two rapists who they picked up along the way, they're going to try to bully him and beat him up. He starts to beat them uh, and just win that. And then we get to finally a character who I think, you know, if, if you have that sort of like jerk drill sergeant from the first guy that we met, this guy is sort of the wizened. Uh, veteran who gets to speak a little little knowledge. He's he's the mentor figure.
0: I think there's an interesting moment that leads us into this fight really well, too. Uh, Because John, like you said, is thinking through how much he's struggling with the people around him and how they're not what he expected. We get a quick, uh, quick rapid fire of new names of people in his class who Mm -hmm. all hate him as we see in a moment very concretely. Darion, Pip, Jaron, Gren, and Halder. Uh, But he also thinks how, you know, everybody's being mean to him. Tyrion is the only one who's honest, even Benjen. Has been a dick to him, and he goes through this thought process that really ties into stuff that we've been talking about since the prologue here. Because he goes to Benjamin, I mean, he's like week one in the Night's Watch, and here's Benjen's going north of the Wall, and comes and says, "I want to come with you. I'm ready." <laughs> Benjen says, "Absolutely not. You on the Wall only a man only gets what he earns. You're no ranger, only a green boy with the smell of summer still on you." If you thought your stark blood would win you easy favors you were wrong and i think this is an interesting moment for a bunch of reasons because first off you know john has this struggle with learning where he is and how everybody's going to act and how they're going to treat him but we also just know from the prologue that this is not necessarily always the case i mean i i assume waymar royce went through some basic training but he did get a command right off the bat his stark blood john stark blood probably does mean something here Uh, And I I get the feeling that Benjen, as somebody from a well-off background, from nobility, and who has become the first ranger, is fairly high up in the Night's Watch, is probably going to be much more willing to look at the system as a meritocracy than somebody like Garrett or Will from the prologue or John's fellow brothers are. Uh, and, And so I just think that's a really interesting clash moment where you can imagine, you know, John gets promoted rapidly. Once he gets out of basic training and gets starting to get put on these missions and says, yeah, I earned it. I'm good enough.
1: Right. I, I know I was reminded of things like officers, candidates, officer candidate school, Yeah, right. where you like, you can go in without having experience per se. I mean, I don't know much about OCS, but like the from what I do understand is that you get to skip all of the, the sort of grunt work that a lot of people have to go through to train, to then get a command post. Um, But there's still, if I understand correctly, like a basic training that goes with that, like even still, John has to go through this. And it's again, like I said, speaks to his age, I think, more than anything else. You know, he's impatient. He wants what he knows he can do, which he probably could do, uh, you know, but but he's got to take the lumps. And 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 I I think that, that this sort of wise and veteran who we find out his name is Donald Noy. Yes, uh, is is this you know starts to give him some of that knowledge and say you need to you need to understand this situation and you clearly don't just because you you think you have and may even have the abilities uh, that that you think you have doesn't mean that you're just going to get you know free passes to everything and just get pushed along you need to understand that you're part of a brotherhood you're part of a, a, a larger something larger than yourself uh, and you need to become a part of that. Right. And that
0: really reinforces what what Benjamin was saying there. And it's an interesting contrast coming out of the chapters that had been so focused, as we discussed, on John's outsider status to get this image of him as a a higher up and and dealing with the intersection of, yes, he's a bastard. Yes, he was excluded from the Stark family, but that doesn't mean that he didn't get a lot of the benefits that come along with that.
1: So we definitely get more insights into who donald noy is he definitely has a history uh john even kind of thinks it to himself that you know this is kind of what would be the right way to say it you know like this guy might be a little full of shit because it's not like he came here as a young boy and rose to the ranks he actually had a full life before he got here but at the same time uh donald noy uh, uh you know really really twists the screws here a little bit on john yeah. and he says you gotta like 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 fall in. i I think it's interesting that John thinks
0: he's had a full life because we hear that Donald Noy came to the wall when he was 30. Uh, you know, this isn't somebody who was an old man, uh, despite him really having that grizzled mentor feel. Uh, he was 30 years old. He lived, he was a blacksmith down south. We hear about how he forged robert's uh warhammer potentially and then in a fight at some point took a a glancing blow that festered and they had to cut off his arm and at that point is when he uh went up went up north so you know john here is saying oh everybody got what i didn't get this is really that petulance Mm -hmm. that you were talking about where you know donald Lloyd probably had his own fair share of bitterness that he got hurt and this was so then he had to come to this cold hostile place as a result of that not when he was 70, but when he was 30,
1: I will say, though, that 30 is twice the age of a 14 or 15 year old. So I can see that as looking old. But I will also add that I really like this comment that Noy makes. He says to, to Jon Snow, he says, you're no lordling. Remember that you're a snow, not a stark. You're a bastard and a bully. And he really hits hammers at home. He says, "Look, like you have to understand. You're the only person here who's ever held a sword before. Nobody else came from enough wealth to own swords like this. That in your in your you know grades in your class, you know you you need to understand that you're coming in here with a lot more privilege than anybody else had, and you need to step up to your name, not necessarily demand the things that you should yeah. come with that.
0: Yeah, and and also just in those demands that he there's so much certainty that John is in fact better than these other people, both from the skill, but we also have this exchange that I really like that at one point, in the lead-up to the fight, one of the boys, uh, Totter, Toad, says, uh, "You know, who was your mother? Some whore." And John snaps, and that's when he starts beating people and and really trying to fight them. And Noy says, "How are you going to get offended by that? There are people here whose mothers actually were whores. Right? Uh, you know, we've got we've got all these people who came from these really rough backgrounds. And you know, there there was Jaron was born to a septon a priest, uh, who you know we don't know, but that certainly in, in the real world would have plenty of connotations." dishonor and uh, lack of religiosity, uh, and Cotter Pike, who unlike the the nobility that is in charge everywhere else, he commands Eastwatch by the sea, uh, and he's the son of a tavern wench. You are so insistent on your perfection and how great you are that it shows how much disdain you have for the people who didn't come from that same background.
1: Well, from this conversation, John then connects with Tyrion. Uh, who is still up there and bundled in furs so thickly, he looked like a very small bear, also known as a bear cub. Yes, but yeah, there, I, there's I, a word
0: for that. Yeah,
1: I, I'll say though, I, I am adoring their relationship. I love that that Tyrion is finding a uh, uh, a mentee to mentor, uh, and and I think John is appreciating the candid, you know, the candid kind of conversations that that Tyrion will have with him. You know they kind of go back and and forth and and honestly I I didn't have I didn't really have much to say about what it is that they had a conversation about what I I mean and so I, I want to leave it to you if you want to bring it up but for me yeah the next big thing is when they start talking about they I think they even sit down at this point but they talk about Benjin uh, and the fact that he hasn't returned. Right. In much longer than than he thought did you want to bring up anything before that
0: yeah so you know that's definitely the big plot point of this conversation but we have uh, some background here more on their relationship uh John and Tyrion traveled together as we know and spent some time together as they arrived we get some explanation of the wall uh it's Really imposing, uh, and and is just this enormous structure that they saw from a huge distance away. We got our number, which I referenced a, a long time ago. It's seven hundred feet tall, which is hilarious. I mean, that's that's absurd, uh, and the top is wide enough for a dozen armored knights to ride. And we got this moment. From in that description of when they first arrived, where John specifically thinks how the wall was dizzying, and looking up at it, he felt as if it were about to topple, and somehow John knew that if it fell, the world fell with it. And which I think is a, a fun little moment, maybe a little dramatic irony for us on on knowing what's on the other side with the others. Mm the last thing that i'll bring up on this section here uh, this is just a little more world building about the night's watch we just get a lot of hints that the night's watch as an institution is falling apart here
1: yeah i actually noted that too yeah go ahead and keep going but yes i i i wanted to bring that up also yeah
0: so so the first the biggest thing is is we hear that there are 19 castles on the wall Only three of them are still in use. So there's Castle Black, which is at the top of the King's Road, somewhere in the middle. Uh, And then the two different ends of the wall, there is Eastwatch by the Sea, which is, of course, the eastern end and the Shadow Tower in the west. Uh, and those are the only ones that have any soldiers anymore. We also hear just about the sheer size of things. Castle Black is big enough that it used to house 5,000 soldiers. Uh, it's closer to a tenth of that number now. John stays in a tower called Hardin's Tower, which has a broken battlement and a lean to it like our noble king Robert after a long night's drinking. Uh, And there's also a mention that Ghost stays in one of the stables because all of the horses of the Night's Watch are able to fit in one of the stables, so the others are all empty. So this is just really, really an institution in decline here. Uh, And we got some of that from the prologue chapter, but I think it's worth noting here and probably contributes to John's general sense of uh, or, or general struggles with being here at this place, which is not what he was expecting it to be.
1: I will say then, uh, you know, moving back to where, where I brought us, the you know, basically Tyrion brings up that there's word that everyone kind of knows that Benjen's been gone for a long time. The search party that he went out on, the one that John so badly wanted to go with him on, I uh, hasn't returned. And in fact, John, John even concedes that he, he he said Benjen had told him that he'd be back by his name day, uh, which was a fortnight ago. You know, this has been right. a long time. We also find out that this party that Benjamin went on was going to look for Sir Waymore Royce, who we had met in, that, uh, in the prologue. You know, this is clearly, you know, not only, there's sort of two things happening at the same time. You have this falling apart of this institution of the Night's Watch, and then you have something that is actually starting to become a threat That that, you know, people are starting to realize a little bit. I can only assume that if news of a threat from beyond the wall starts to come down into you know, the warmer cities, if you will, the Southern cities. Into I wonder the world, if the yeah. reaction would be, you're just complaining, you just want more attention because everything's falling apart. You need to, to kind of create lore around this. But we know here there there are issues going on. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting point that maybe some of the news
0: coming from the North, maybe if Garrett had been able to communicate more clearly with Ned when he got captured, that maybe there would be more focus on strengthening the night's watch as an institution because yeah we're getting all of these disappearances uh we're getting rangers going missing now benjamin is added to that list although john thinks this easily could have been a long expedition he knew that going in so maybe there's nothing crazy going on here uh, i mean what do you think
1: i don't know it's uh, i i think i and i say this in the most complimentary way to the writing right like like i think it's intentionally for us the reader ambiguous you mm-hmm. know it's be, they've been gone a long time uh this is it's a worrying amount of time people are starting to talk at the same time we even know from the prologue that they, they you know the, the night's watch go deep beyond right. the wall uh they go far the fact is, the ones is that the
0: specific people benjen is looking for went way exactly. out there
1: exactly and who knows what they're finding and what they're doing they they are scouts they are you know clearly like this is part of what they do and if they they found like a thread to pull i'm sure that they pulled it and want to continue to find it so you know, I wonder and and can only assume that an institution like the Night's Watch, with the fact that it has these types of expeditions to do into dangerous area, that there's sort of this, everyone knows that you want to stay hopeful for as long as you can, because yeah. maybe they do come back three weeks later than they said, because they are professionals and they had to hide for what, maybe they don't come back and you, you know, put up a little shrine to them and hope that they one day do, but with the sort of knowledge in the back of your mind that they're not coming back. Who knows right. if it's the wolves that got them or the Grumkins or the whatever out there. But this is part of it. I think this is probably one of the hardest parts about being on the Night's Watch is the unknowability of what happened to the to Sir Waymore Royce or what might have happened to Benjen. Yeah. Uh, so just interesting there. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then they quickly get interrupted. Tyrion and uh, and John get interrupted by Alistair Thorne who yes. I don't know what his title is, but he basically he's the master at arms. He's the drill sergeant. Oh, he's the one that we saw earlier. Yeah. yeah I, forgot. I didn't know his name there, <laughs> but with that said, he says, uh, John, you need to come see what I want to refer to as the headmaster, but it's the Lord commander. Yes. Uh, Lord commander has news for you. And, yes. uh, and, and we had alluded to this a moment ago in the podcast from the last chapter when we were talking about Tyrion's knife, because, uh, you know, there's, we find out there's a message for John, It comes from home with news and John's first reaction is, Oh my God, Bran must've died. Uh And in the same breath as that Tyrion says, I am truly sorry. Yeah. I mean, it seems honest as if he knew, as if he knew Dan, as if he knew something had happened to Bran. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, this feels honest
0: to me. This feels sincere from, from Tyrion. John even thinks that it's sincere. And You know, John is put, or excuse me, Tyrion is putting two and two together here. Like, like this is not an unreasonable thing to expect that the news from home is about.
1: I guess. I guess, Dan. But wasn't it his knife that tried to murder the boy? Well, that's what I'm asking you. I keep asking you this. You seem very sure, though. Yeah, I don't know. I'm getting the sense that there's a lot of, and I say this for like taking a step back from directly the story. The writing style seems to be intentionally ambiguous in the way that life is. You know, we don't know. I just don't know if Tyrion did this or not. I didn't see him walk in there with the knife. Between the fact that we found out it was his knife in the last chapter and the fact that he is so quick to assume what Jon assumes. He's not saying you haven't read the letter you know, who knows? It could, don't worry, John, you know, the comfort is not, you might be thinking this in the the worst, but
0: the the kid's been in a coma for weeks. Like it's not a crazy assumption to have that the news about him is that he's dead.
1: Yeah. But don't forget either that. I mean, like before John even left, that the words were brand was out of the worst, you know, that that he's made a that Exactly. So, so, you know, I think that there, there's whether this puts a, a clear pointer finger on Tyrion for being the absolute bad guy the finger on the trigger of the gun that that was meant to kill uh you know bran or not the fact is it's definitely suspicious to me uh right. you know it's good for you to be suspicious i, like I am that.
0: suspicious there's a there's another piece to, to what's going on right now this isn't the first mention we've had of him this chapter but did you notice anything else about the lord commander here if you tell me he had no ears, I'm gonna lose my shit. <laughs> no, that would be pretty funny. Yeah, it, there's actually a lot of characters with no ears. You just keep missing it. Oh my god, I just, I just no, don't pay it's, attention. To ears. It's Lord
1: Commander Mormont. Oh yeah, didn't we hear that name before?
0: Uh, we heard it earlier in this chapter, but uh, yeah, this is this is Sir Jorah Mormont's dad. I don't know who that is. The okay. Sir Jorah Mormont is the guy who swore allegiance to Viserys that has been hanging out with Danny that we know was oh. spying on her and passing information back to Varys.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is just a little, I mean, it's just a little world building moment that they come from. So the you're same saying family.
1: there's a lot of nepotism in the Night's Watch? Well, Sir Jorah isn't in the Night's Watch.
0: That's not nepotism. He's not a spy from,
1: from the Night's Watch? What? No. They didn't take a okay. Night's Watchman. No, as a spy.
0: Sir, Sir Jorah specifically fled instead of being executed or going to the Night's Watch. He's the guy who we met in Danny's first chapter and then again in Danny 2.
1: But I thought that's he what fled. he said. But then we know he's a spy. I thought, like, he's a spy under the purview of the king who then yeah. said that he had fled, but we know he's a spy.
0: We know he definitely fled. All Ned right. wanted to execute him but he is also passing information along about danny which is what prompted ned and robert's fight over killing her he said she's getting married and robert said okay that's it we got to kill her because she's marrying caldrogo and that's problem that information came from jorah but that was years after he fled the country
1: ah okay did we sort that out so he's not in the night's watch no Okay. Okay, good. Then in that case, yeah, I'm on it. Just his dad is in the Night's Watch, and he's the head of the Night's Watch. What are the odds? You know what I mean? I mean, probably pretty high. How many people are there, really? There's only 500 in the Night's Watch. You're right. Like, uh, yeah.
0: like Only like 700 in the entire country. So,
1: no. uh, so John anyway, jumps continue. up to go with the worst thoughts in his mind about what this letter will say, and uh i thought there was actually a wonderful sort of uh almost hilarity like like a wonderful almost joke like a comforting joke that happens in this next scene he goes to the lord commander he gets the letter he finds out bran has woken up and the lord commander basically says i'm so sorry your brother's going to be a cripple and john is basically like i can't believe this boy woke up i'm so excited uh which i just think is lovely
0: yeah he didn't know before he left that that the diagnosis was that Bran would probably exactly. be paralyzed. Uh, so this is only good news for him. Uh, but it is interesting, you know, we we had that Jamie take uh, from Tyrion's first chapter where he said, I'd, "I'd rather be dead than be a grotesque, than be a cripple." Uh, and so, you know, who knows if Mormont is learning about this for the first time, or if he knew about it already and is simply having the same take: "Oh, this right. is the worst thing that could ever happen to you." But all mm, John cares about is that his brother's alive.
1: I'll add to that. I mean, this is right at the end end of the chapter, but John is, is thrilled beyond all belief. He's jumping for joy. He's running out of the office, basically, and sharing with everyone he passes that Bran will live, to which I'm sure nobody knows who the fudge Bran is. Uh, <laughs> but I will add that this also earns John an opportunity to really lean into the advice that he got from the more sage uh, yeah, Yeah. Donald Noy that we had brought up before where he, he takes an opportunity to, uh, offer, uh, some training to the man that he just beat, uh, who had even come to bully him back. Uh, and then, you know, kind of takes a joke or a pot shot that the master of arms gives him to make, turn that into a larger joke that many people kind of laugh with, but the, you know, at the master of arms, if you will. And, uh, and, and it gives him this much more, uh, ingratiated feeling john kind of becomes a little more further uh uh de- just better enmeshed with with his comrades just a little bit through this levity that he's able to create and so it seems like a real turning point for john he gets the good news he's feeling really lively about this he seems to have heard the words that donald Noy had given him and he's yeah. ready to jump in and try to be a better man now uh than he has been or just to yeah. be a man i mean like to kind of grow to, like understand his situation a little bit more
0: and to, to start trying to be a leader the specific exchange is he tells gren uh who we started the chapter with john kicking the crap out of uh but he tells gren the move i used on you that hurt your wrist uh rob used it on me one time i know it hurts a lot and uh if you want i can show you how to defend against it to which sir alistair says i'd have an easier time teaching a wolf to juggle than you will training this orox." And John says, I'll take that wager. I'd love to see Ghost juggle. And we see that Alistair is very upset. Sir Alistair's pissed that everybody's laughing at him and that John is making this joke at his expense. But I wonder, it, you know, we talk about the drill sergeant mentality and uh, at least the stereotype of that attitude is that some of it is to help forge the unit together. Uh, is this a success story is, is Sir Alistair being a dick to everybody to try and get them to bond. And this is an example of it working. Um, and maybe he's playing a part here or is this guy just an asshole?
1: I think he's just an asshole, but I think that's part of being a drill sergeant. Like the role of the drill sergeant is to eventually help people come together as a unit, but the drill sergeant themselves can only accomplish that by being assholes, you know, like (laughs) like, you can't like get the position, fake it. Right. Exactly. Like they're a core part. I'm sure of camaraderie that that eventually comes out. But uh, but I'm sure there's a reason why the drill sergeant doesn't continue with the squad. They stay to be a dick to the next squad. Right. So that that was my take. Okay, that
0: makes perfect sense. So that that brings us to Ned four and we're back in King's Landing again. Uh, here we are. Yeah, so we know that Catelyn beat him. Uh, This chapter starts off with Ned arriving in King's Landing, and and he walks into the Red Keep and is immediately summoned by Grand Maester Pycelle for a small council meeting, uh, which he hates. He's very upset about that and is uh, trying to get out of it at first, but immediately realizes that he should be there and he should go. He sends Arya and Sansa with his men to go get settled in their rooms and specifically tells Jory to keep Arya from exploring and then goes to meet with everybody else. He walks in and the first person he runs into is Lord Varys, who Ned thinks of as the counselor he likes least. Um, and Varys, much like with Catelyn, it immediately starts bringing up things that he knows about from the past and, and, and what's been going on. He says, I'm so sorry about the troubles on the trip here, uh, specifically referencing the incident with the dire wolves. Uh, and says, I've been praying for Joffrey's quick recovery, which uh, definitely Ned does not appreciate because the crisis of that event was not Joffrey getting attacked by a baby wolf but rather the execution of one of the wolves and the the whole situation with Robert. Uh, He then turns to Renly, who of course we know and has been traveling with them for a little while. And we actually get a very specific reference here. Ned is taken aback. He has a moment where he really sees younger Robert instead of Renly uh, and and tells him that, you know, you really look exactly like your brother used to, which Renly uh, kind of fitting with Everything we got from him previously uh, lets roll off his back and laughs it off as it says, I'm a poor, but a poor copy, Uh, which I think is a a nice little moment of brotherly respect for the king there. Next, Ned turns to Littlefinger and says he's always wanted to meet him. Uh, No doubt Lady Catelyn has mentioned me to you, which is quite a line from a guy we learned from Catelyn's chapter earlier this episode used to have a crush on her. Ned gets annoyed with him, says, I understand you knew my brother as well. Uh, And then we get a reference to that story too. Uh, Lord Baelish says, I still carry a token of his esteem. Did he speak of me too? Often and with some heat. And this banter continues. Baelish says, heat is bad for the Starks. In the South, they say you're made of ice and melt when you ride below the neck. Uh, So there's just a lot of veiled threats going on back and forth here. Uh, At at least some banter and some insults going back and forth to, to kick this off. We finally, after this, wrap up the introductions. Ned says hi to Grandmaster Paisel, who we get the description of him. He is old. And that's really the only information we get about him in this chapter.
1: I will say, too, that, that there's a line, and, and I, didn't, I didn't mark it, but I, I liked it a lot, where Ned comes to an understanding, he, just internally, that he's no longer the leader that he got to be, the head of house that he was up in the north in Winterfell, but he is one among equals. And I think that for all of this sort of heated banter going back and forth, that, again, these are people who who have been in their positions longer than Ned has been hand of the king. They understand this dynamic a bit. They understand, you know, like what 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 needs to, you know, where their their stature is here. Ned doesn't get to be what what they might think of and worry of as a bully that although I think he would consider as, you know, righteous leader. Uh, but, right. and he has to appreciate that, you know, they Lord Varys, Lord Barris, rather, you know, a uh, little finger has every Baelish. right to Baelish, I'm sorry, but he has every right to, to say, like, I think you should have heard about me and to expect someone in Ned's position to lie and say, yes, you yeah. know, I understand that you're on the council, you're on the small council, you are directly connected to the king.
0: Right. So, I mean, I, I thought that was. An interesting line, too, that you singled out as potentially another example, taking a, a different view of it, of Ned not totally understanding the context. Because every description we've gotten of the hand of the king before now is this is the second most powerful person in the realm. This is is right under the king. He, he rules in the king's stead a, a decent amount. He is... Is the next one in line. And by putting himself at the level with these other people, or first among equals is a little better than that, but he might be undercutting himself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it it would be, I think there's a world where he avoids bullying anybody, but walks into this meeting and takes charge instead of seeing himself as one of several. And he clearly doesn't have any instinct to do that.
1: I will say, too, that, you know, in this conversation, in fact, the reason for the council meeting as so quickly upon Ned's arrival is uh, the king has actually sent in front of him uh, a message saying there's something of the utmost importance that the council needs to take care of. And right. we find out it's a party that he wants. The king wants to throw a party, actually, in Ned's honor, new hand of the king. And we find out what I think is the crucial part from like like a crucial piece of information uh, in this conversation is that Robert, as king has flushed all the money that this kingdom has down the toilet. Yeah. The, the money's gone. And not only is the money gone, but of the gone money, 50% of it like I'm sorry, of the money that now the king is in debt to, 50% yeah. of it is to the Lannister family.
0: Right. I uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Go so ahead, we get uh, we
0: got six million in debt here, six million golden dragons uh And that is an insane number. First of all, I mean, we hear they're trying to hand out ninety thousand in prizes to the tournament that they're going to throw in Ned's honor. Remember that Brand's murder cost ninety silver stags. So this is this is insane money. But of that six million, three million is to the Lannisters, and then the rest of it is a combination of Lord Tyrell. Wow, we just heard that name, Loris Tyrell. Last chapter mm-hmm. or two chapters ago, the Iron Bank of Bravos and several Tyroshi trading cartels, as well as the Faith, the High Septon haggles worse than a Dornish fishmonger, which I like as well.
1: Ned is also quick to say, "I can't believe that John Aaron would have let this happen." To yeah. which the rest of the small council kind of giggles and says, "Yeah, John Aaron didn't want this to happen, but the king does what the king wants to do." He's going to do you – know, he likes his parties, and if he wants it, that's he is the king at the end of the day. And once again, I'm brought back to this feeling that I've only just started to have of the Stark family being too righteous for their own good. Just even in their thinking, oh, you know, my best friend, Robert Baratheon, who's now king, he, there's no way he could do this. There, right. But he is doing it. He is doing it, and he, seem, he now seems to be the one – the king now seems to be the one who is – just absolutely the worst. I (laughs) mean, uh...
0: yes, absolutely. I, I think that Ned is having... On the flip side, of, is two sides of the same coin having a nice moment here, though, where he sees his role and that of John Aaron before him as being a check on Robert's worst impulses. You know, John Aaron was a father figure to them, and now he's here. How could you let this happen? He says that to Baelish as the mm-hmm. master of coin. And everyone else who's sitting here is like, We just, we're just here to do what the king wants. Uh, and so, you know, maybe there is some positive aspects to this attitude that Ned has to this righteousness where he's going to be able to whip things into shape and have more of an interest in doing so than these people who are just trying to suck up to Robert.
1: I'll actually add and twist that just a little bit, although I agree with you, but going back to the Catlin chapter and you know the role that, that Littlefinger seems to have and, and just who his character seems to be, the fact is if you're master of coin, being the guy who can go and secure more funds all the time puts you in right. an amazing position right uh and I can only assume that that's like very true for all of these. so whereas a John Aaron or a Ned Stark might be here to really want to push to counsel the king towards more being a more responsible King, there might be some real oppor- opportunities available that the small council sees for themselves in their positions to help the king go a, a, you know awry you know yeah. go away from where he should be so that their positions are sort of more necessary.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe Ned does need to form some alliances, some first among equals relationships with these others. So as to put what he's talking about into practice, you know, he needs the help from the others. Uh, But that really brings us to the close of the small council scene. Ned says, don't start planning the tournament until I talk to Robert. I'm going to talk him out of this. Everybody else says, well, we'll start making arrangements so we don't get stuck when he doesn't listen to you, which he inevitably won't. Uh, And Ned goes to leave. And as Ned is walking back to his rooms, Baelish stops him and says, come with me. Uh, And they sneak out of the castle through the dungeons. Ned keeps getting annoyed with Baelish, uh, who won't tell him where they're going until finally he reveals, I'm bringing you to your wife. And Ned says, you know, that's ridiculous. She's not here. And we get another couple moments here, similar to earlier between Baelish and Ned, where, where Baelish keeps poking and prodding at Ned here about being stupid effectively he keeps keeps calling Ned out on this you know there's there's a moment where he jokes about oh i'm gonna i'm I'm bringing you to the dungeons where i'm gonna kill you huh and uh later on ned says you know we snuck out of the castle where are you bringing me and littlefinger says yeah okay great you didn't get fooled what tipped you off the the sun or the sky And so there's just a bunch of moments of, of that nature where this is quite an antagonistic relationship it almost feels like the You know your your high school crush's husband who's the washed up formerly cool guy comes and finds you at your big important job that that baelish is really enjoying this moment of getting to take shots at
1: ned i'm team baelish on this i think ned's too straight list
0: yeah i mean baelish is definitely giving us a little more fun here they finally arrive at a brothel which we learn baelish owns ned gets very upset about this and actually uh, throws Baelish against a wall and pulls his knife on him, says, you know, how are you going to say my wife is in a brothel? And Baelish says, calm down, come in here. I swear she's here and uh, try and look like you fit in. Perhaps you could fondle a breast or two just in passing. But that brings Ned to Cat, and, and he sees her and, you know, obviously wants to know what she's doing there. Catelyn explains the whole story to him about the attack on Bran. But now we get into the, the heart of the conversation here. Uh, Ned really doesn't understand why Tyrion would attack Ran. And Baelish says Tyrion wasn't going to be doing this by himself, which is really right. exactly what you had been saying a, a couple of chapters ago. Ned thinks, you know, about Cersei and obviously the threats they have with her, and then about Robert and wonders if maybe he was involved. Uh, he thinks about how Robert has this history of, of killing children or of wanting to kill Danny and the argument that they have surrounding
1: that. Uh, and also Robert's lack of implementation of justice. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like whether Robert was directly involved or not, Robert is not all that concerned with his friends' kids right now. He's not that concerned about anything except his own pleasures. And I think that starts to show up just more and more and more as we're learning, as we're spending more time with these characters. Yeah. And you know, Baelish
0: says kind of exactly that. Robert probably didn't know what was going on. Our Mm -hmm. good Robert is practiced at closing his eyes to things he would rather not see. Uh, But he points out, you know, if you accuse Robert or more likely if you accuse Cersei, uh, considering the whole story that we have going on here, that's an act of treason and and you're going to get executed for it. If you're going to do this, you need proof uh, if you're going to go up against the queen and just be very careful about that. You really don't have proof. The dagger is not enough because Tyrion will just say, I didn't have it it, Yeah.
1: And I'll add, too, I mean, the they, Littlefinger goes far enough to suggest, like, you need to throw that dagger in the river. Like, you you got to get rid of that. You got to stop thinking about this is a way to make a point. You know, you have to come at this from another side. And I'll say, too, one of the things, you know, here I am complaining about Catelyn and Ned and, you know, they're dumb or whatever it is. But the fact is, I think Ned makes has the. The mo- the smartest reaction that he can have here is I think he starts to understand he's starting to get a sense of something. Like, he's starting to read some of the writing on the wall. He has a best friend who is a king that he hasn't seen in ages, who is clearly not being responsible about things and not paying attention. You have Lannisters who are taking over. And I'm not going to remember the names of the places, right? But Tywin Lannister in the east or the west, and Jamie Lannister, the west. yeah, yeah, and Jamie Lannister having control in the east. You have an enormous amount of debt to the Lannisters from the king. Uh, you have you know you know, and, and now you have this threat, this real attack connected to the Lannisters, presumably. On his own son, and basically he says we, to Catelyn, Ned says to Catelyn, we need to prepare for war. We need to make yeah. sure that we're ready, that there, there's no way they're going to catch us with our pants down uh, if this is where it's going. And I think that to me that's just the smartest thing is like, right, he's not – he understands how dire this situation could potentially be. If it is as bad as it seems to be, it's very bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the conversation with Littlefinger really closes. With Littlefinger saying, okay, if you're going to insist on following this, I will help you. Uh, I promised Cat I would, and uh, I can never refuse your wife anything. Catlin had told him about all of the backstory, everything they had. Littlefinger says, I, I, I'm here to contribute. Uh, and at this point, he he leaves them alone after a couple more jabs. He, he offers them the use of one of the whorehouse rooms, uh, which is for people as prim and proper as Cat Ned, probably a very offensive joke to make. But once he leaves, this is when Ned tells Catelyn to start making the war plans. Uh, the specifics here, he says, reach out to Hellman Tallhart and Galbert Glover uh, to tell them to put archers at Moat Kalin to hold the neck, which we heard about During uh, Arya and Sansa's chapters, the Neck is is this narrow, boggy area that leads into the north. So this is where we're going to fortify our area. People aren't. If we get attacked, we'll be able to hold them off here. And he also says, tell Lord Manderly to strengthen and repair his defenses at White Harbor and man them. And of course, we know that that's the big city in the north, the harbor town. He also adds one other note on this. Keep a close watch on Theon. We'll need the Greyjoy fleet if this goes mm-hmm. to war. So this is another indication. You know, we talked before about whether Ned would, would actually be able to execute Theon or prison him or something like that if Greyjoy was to rise up against him. But this is another, you know, a less extreme option, uh, a way to use the ward situation as well.
1: Right. That's very fair.
0: Yeah. And so after all this planning, you know, Kat's worried. She says so. Uh, but Ned says, don't worry, we're going to be okay. And I'm going to get proof of the murders and go to Robert. But he thinks to himself and pray that he is the man I think he is and not the man I fear he has become. Uh, which I think ties in with exactly what we were talking about. That Ned is starting to realize that that this isn't the situation he was hoping for. And Robert is not in control of himself and not really paying attention to things. And, uh, and might be swayed by these political manipulations that are going on. Might, might be put against me.
1: I wanted to add, you know, something that that struck me here at the end, and especially with that last comment that Ned made, is that, you know, every chapter is told from an individual character's perspective. And without a doubt, and you you had mentioned that. I don't remember if this was on the podcast or even before we had even started any of this. But, mm-hmm. you know, when when you have every every insight comes from a particular character's eyes, there's bias involved. And something that starts to stand out to me here is, Maybe Ned and Robert's war on, you know, the Targaryens was not as just or as needed as they think it was, Uh, you know, and and what their beliefs are. Maybe, you know, know, I I wonder if there's going to be a point later in this book or in the series where, you know, it turns out the boogeyman is actually who we thought the hero was. You know, th- that there's a rightful, you know, that that the most just of leaders happen to have been the Targaryens, even okay. the Mad King. And I don't know. I have no reason to say that that's true at this point, as much as the righteousness that Ned thought his friend Robert Baratheon was going to bring to the kingdom doesn't yeah. seem to be there right now. I'm not seeing any problems in the kingdom. You know what right. I mean? Like, like nobody seems unhappy per se, but, but I'm, I'm just, I just thought that was interesting as I start to see these seams come undone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we necessarily have clear indications. We certainly know what the prompts were from the Stark perspective for the war of the the execution of his father and brother and the abduction of his sister and then, then calling for Ned and Robert's heads, which was, as we had heard, the final prompt to the raising of the banners. Uh, and, and certainly there may be another viewpoint on that, but I think something you just touched on that I find very interesting is, is that maybe there's a difference between the active problems and the passive problems. Mm. So even if the Mad King wasn't the hero, the, the glorious king that they were overthrowing, he was being actively harmful, you know, in the way that we talked about with the Aria trial, that right. you start right. punishing people for unjust reasons and that leads to a rebellion against you. But here we have an example of Robert not pissing people off in that manner, or at least not that we've heard about, True, but also not doing all that much at all. He's hmm. not doing things that are going to bother anyone, but he's also not bringing justice. And he's also not uh, being a, a smart fiduciary guide of, of the realm. He's not keeping things flush and keeping everybody well off of rich. He is Making the kingdom go broke, and he's going in debt to the lannisters, and he's putting uh bad people in charge of important positions and these are the types of things that have a tendency to catch up to you so whereas the rebellion maybe was we can't have these active bad things happening anymore it didn't think through how do we be actively good instead of actively bad right. and right. instead, we ended up in a position that was just passively nothing,
1: yeah, apathetic
0: well, that wraps us up, I think uh,
1: Things are getting spicy, man.
0: Time, yeah. Yes, they are. Next time, we'll talk through the next three chapters, which are uh, Tyrion 3, Arya 2, and Danny 3. So I will talk to you then.
1: All right, man. I'm looking forward to it. That's all for this episode. Next
0: week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones Tyrion 3, Arya 2, and Danny 3. If you've enjoyed our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. Ratings and reviews really go a long way for us in terms of bringing us to other people's attention. And follow us on Twitter. The handle is at bros, B-R-O-S, with banners. Follow us, recommend us to others, retweet, share with your friends. It's always the best recommendation we can have. Thanks, as always, for listening.